Well, as we just saw in our song, and as we probably all experience in our lives, we are living in times of great uncertainty in the world. Uh, Times where we ask a lot of questions about, when is this all going to end? When are things going to get better? Questions about international peace, questions about national security, maybe questions about our own personal security, whether it's things related to our health, things related to our finances, uh, things related to relationships that we have. And we've been in the book of Genesis, and we've been arguing that Genesis still speaks to us today. We've been arguing that Genesis is as relevant today as ever. And we're going to be introduced today uh, to a new character in the book of Genesis. And we're going to be spending the next two months uh, in Genesis chapter 12 to 22. And we're going to be looking at the life of Abraham. Just kind of a recap of where we've been. We've been in chapters 1 through 11. So we've seen uh, the creation and the fall. We've seen the the flood and the Tower of Babel. We've seen a lot of genealogies. We've seen this kind of history of the world of, of mankind spreading out uh, across the face of the earth. And now we're coming to a, a big change in the story, beginning in chapter 12, which is where we're going to actually be next week. Um, we're skipping ahead to chapter 22, and I'll explain a little bit more about why we're doing that in a bit here. But I was reading, I was reading a book this week called, uh, there's a, a series called The Gospel According to the Old Testament. And we've been talking about Where is Jesus, right? Where is Jesus in the Old Testament? Where is Jesus in Genesis? And we've seen many examples of how we can see Christ in the Old Testament. This series, The Gospel According to the Old Testament, this book is called Living in the Gap Between Promise and Reality, The Gospel According to Abraham. So looking here at how does Abraham point us forward to Jesus? I think the the introduction to this book, there's a couple paragraphs here. It's, it's a little long. I usually don't like to, to read long quotes in the beginning of a sermon, but I think this is very timely uh, with where we're at, uh, with Easter Sunday. So pay attention here. He calls this living in the reality gap. How do you respond when you find yourself falling into the reality gap? How do you feel when there seems to be an immeasurable difference between what God has promised and what you see now? What do you do when the vision you once had of the way your life was supposed to work out seems to be crumbling into dust? It is easy to be a Christian in the sunshine of Palm Sunday, surrounded by the crowds chanting their praises to Jesus, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But it is much harder to be a disciple in the gathering gloom on the road to Emmaus, puzzling over the death of the Messiah and not yet seeing how that death will lead to resurrection. For most of us, much of our lives seems to be spent trudging along that dreary road to Emmaus. For one person, the reality gap may appear in the form of sudden and unexpected employment with little prospect of another job. For another, it may come with sickness and crippling health problems. It may come to you through the death of a spouse or child. It may be caused by an intense frustration with the church in which God has placed you. Let's hope that's not true, but it could be. 
Any or all of these circumstances may cause a crisis of faith in your life as you ponder the reality gap between what God has promised and the circumstances in which you find yourself. Surely this isn't what life should be like as a Christian, you think to yourself. Again, last week we looked at the Tower of Babel, the title of The sermon was the gospel of self-preservation, a faithless attempt. And like those in Genesis 11 who built the city and built the tower for self-preservation, I think we often fail to trust God, we often fail to trust his promises, and we don't live lives of faith and obedience. Last week we argued that Jesus, through the gospel, calls us to an entirely different view, a completely reoriented view of self. We looked at John chapter 12 and talked about the grain of wheat falling into the ground and dying so that it would bear fruit, how we are called to die to ourselves, how we are called to serve God and live for him. So why are we jumping ahead to Genesis chapter 22? Why not just keep going in, in Genesis chapter 12? We're going to see a very stark contrast today between what happens in Genesis chapter 22 and what happened in Genesis chapter 11. I think it's very fitting for Easter, and I'll kind of leave the the cliffhanger there, and we'll we'll get to that. But we're going to see in Abraham a faith-filled rejection of the gospel of self-preservation. A faith-filled rejection of the gospel of of self-preservation. And again, we use that word gospel kind of... In quotes, right? It's not, there is no gospel of self-preservation. But that is the message, that is the way that the world wants to live, the, world, the way the world wants to tell us to live. And we see Abraham, by faith, rejecting that view. But another thing I want to kind of caution us as we get into this is that Abraham is not the hero of the story. Abraham is not the one that we should look to after reading this and say, hey, I want to be more like Abraham. And again, we'll, we'll get to that. But let's go to the text. Let's go to God's word. Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 18. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, 
Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for the story that we just read. Lord, may you show us more of who you are. Show us the beauty of the gospel in this story of Abraham and Isaac. Help us to know you more, to love you more, to trust you more. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to break this story down into four scenes. The first scene is a terrifying test in verses 1 and 2. A terrifying test. We see here, it says, After these things, God tested Abraham, said to him, Abraham. Now, we don't know why God tested Abraham here. Uh, The text doesn't tell us, the narrator doesn't tell us why God tested Abraham. And Abraham apparently doesn't know why he's being tested. Abraham simply replies, here I am. For Abraham, he was living in that reality gap that the book that we just quoted from talked about. God had given him promises beginning in chapter 12, throughout the the chapters, chapter 12, chapter 15, chapter 17, God promises him descendants, that his descendants will be numerous. He promises him a land to live in. And now he's he's been waiting for many, many years for a son. And the son is finally given to him. And then he's given this huge test. God tells him, to take his son, to offer him as a burnt offering. God tells him here to go to the land which he will show him. God had told him in verse 12, or chapter 12, verse 1, go to the land that I will show you. So there's that going out, that trusting God. Chapter 15 Abraham is told again to, to, to go and to trust God. And he says, how am I to know? 
So in a sense, Abraham is kind of testing God. Abraham wants to know, God, tell me, how is this going to happen? How can, how can these things be true? And you remember that God tells Abraham to bring the animals, and he cuts the animals and puts them in two, and God walks through the animals, and God shows that he will fulfill the promise. One of the crazy things about this story here is that there is almost total silence from Abraham. Abraham only speaks to God twice in this whole narrative. You see it there in verse 1. He says, answers and says, here I am. And then he responds to God once again in verse 11 and says, here I am. So he doesn't question like he did earlier. He simply trusts God and he obeys God. Well, can you imagine how restless Abraham must have been? Thinking, okay, God is telling me to take my son, to go on this journey to this place, and to offer him up as a burnt offering. Probably see a hint in verse 3. says that Abraham rose early in the morning. Can't imagine he probably got a lot of sleep that night, thinking about what was going to happen, thinking about this journey that God had called him to go on. So he begins his preparation for what we're going to see happen in scene two. Scene two is a tense journey. It's in verses three through eight. A tense journey. Abraham and Isaac and these two servants, they pre- they're preparing for a three-day journey. Now we have to look at this, I think, in two different ways. If we look at it through the eyes of Isaac, think about this boy, maybe he's probably a teenager at least, um, he's probably been on journeys like this with his dad before, right? Abraham's probably said, hey, we're going to go. We're going to be gone for a few days. You know, we're going to go hunting or we're going to go visit our relatives, you know, a few days away. Isaac's been on these journeys before. So they're cutting the wood. They're getting everything ready. He's probably thinking, great, we're going to you know, get away for a few days. This is going to be really fun. Uh, Abraham has, has built altars before. They've made sacrifices together before. So as all of this is unfolding, in the eyes of Isaac, it's probably like, okay, this is business as usual. But can you imagine being Abraham? Think about this story through Abraham's eyes. Think about what Abraham was experiencing. He's the only one who knows what God has told him to do. He didn't tell his servants. He, obviously, he didn't tell Isaac. Pretty sure he didn't tell Sarah, or he probably would have not been able to even get a foot out the door. Imagine being the only one with this agonizing news. The only one who knew what God was telling him. Imagine that journey for three days. What would he have talked with Isaac about on the journey? Hey, son, how's the weather? You know, how are things going with the animals? Right? I mean, can you imagine those conversations, what they must have been like. Now, I don't want to overanalyze or over-speculate over about what might have been said, but I do want us to feel that tension, the tension that had to have been going on in Abraham's heart. You see in verse 4, On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. So the tension mounts as they, they look up and they see Mount Moriah. 
Verse 5, Abraham says to the servants, stay here. We're going to go and we're going to worship God. And then we are going to come back again to you. Don't miss this. Abraham is the only one who knows what God told him. And I love that the, the narrator doesn't explain what's going on here. He doesn't explain what's going to happen. We're reading this. Abraham tells them, we're going to go and worship and we're going to come again to you. Not, I'm going to come again to you after I kill my son. We are going to come again to you. Okay, so we're, we're left to, 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 on the edge of our seats, right? What's going to happen? What is, what is Abraham going to do? Verse 6, Isaac, the son, the son carries the wood on his back to the place of sacrifice. Don't miss that reference there. The son carries the wood on his back to the place of sacrifice. And as they begin the climb, we finally hear Isaac speak in verse 7. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, he said, My father, Abraham says, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And you know that Abraham has been preparing for days for this question, right? And his answer to this question, I think, is the key to the whole story. Let's look at Isaac's question and then look at Abraham's answer. Isaac's question, where is the lamb? I want to give credit here to Sinclair Ferguson. Sinclair Ferguson says, this is the central question of the whole Old Testament. This is the most important question that is asked over and over in the Old Testament. Where is the lamb? If you remember Genesis 3, we hinted at it, right? Adam and Eve, after they were naked and ashamed, God clothed them with the skins of an animal, right? So an animal had to die to cover their sin and their shame and their nakedness. So that's kind of that first hint, that first picture, first answer to the question, where is the lamb? We see it here, obviously, the question, where is the lamb? We see it in the Passover celebration as the people come out of Egypt, right? As they kill the the lamb and they put the blood over the doorposts and the Lord passes over and doesn't kill the firstborn of Israel, but all those who did not have the blood of the lamb on their doorposts, the children died. There was the lamb provided for the sacrifice. It happened yearly on the Day of Atonement when the lamb was killed and the blood was spread out on the altar and the Lord passed over the sins of the people. Leviticus chapter 1, just read this, talking about burnt offerings, animals that are being offered up for the burnt offering. So Isaac asked, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? The burnt offering was a a total burning and a a total annihilation of of every part of the animal. You can go read about it in Leviticus 1. So this animal was offered up, it was burned entirely as a burnt offering. The question, where is the lamb? We see it in Isaiah chapter 53, that great prophecy about Jesus, like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, right? This is question, where is the lamb? All throughout the Old Testament is continually pointing us forward to Christ. 
And how does Abraham answer? He says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. We should pause here and feel the weight of this. There's still uncertainty. Isaac is still clueless about what's going to happen. Abraham is still probably completely torn up inside, saying, I know I said this, right, with my lips, that God will provide. But wondering, is God really going to provide the lamb? He still trusted in faith that God would provide, even though he couldn't see how. We come to the third scene, a timely provision, verses 9 to 14, a timely provision. Everything is prepared in verse 9. Abraham builds the altar. He places the wood on the altar. And then it says that he bound Isaac. Okay? He bound Isaac. And the thing I want us to see here is that the son obeys the father. The son obeys the father. Isaac was certainly at least a teenage boy. He was able to carry this wood on his back up the mountain. He was not four or five years old, okay? He's a teenage boy. Abraham is already over 100 years old. Abraham is probably 125 years old by this point. Abraham is an old man, right? You know Isaac can outrun Abraham. He can probably outmuscle Abraham, right? Isaac lays on the altar and allows himself to be bound by his father willingly. And then we come next to the unthinkable scene. Abraham reaches for the knife. And this is a scene that you've probably seen depicted in many famous paintings. Why is it that when we see that picture that we resonate with it so much? It can't be the literal act of child sacrifice. It can't be that we look at that and say, oh, that's a good thing. Like, we should kill our children with knives. That's not why the human heart resonates with that. But I think there's something symbolic in that picture. The emotions we feel about severed relationships, maybe severed relationships between a parent and a child, or maybe deeper existential questions that we have in our lives about sacrifice, right? About trusting God. Like, do I really trust God? Am I willing to sacrifice things in my life to God? Am I, am I trusting God to provide for me, to provide for my family, to provide for my loved ones when I don't see how it's possible, when I don't see where the answer is going to come from? And these are all good questions to think about. And when we look at those, that picture, that scene, those are good questions to ask. But again, I would caution us from too much putting ourselves in that scene because the story at the end of the day isn't about us. We're not Abraham. We're not called to sacrifice our children on an altar in an actual way like Abraham was. This story is about Abraham in a sense in what actually took place. It's a unique Story. He was a unique person in redemptive history, and so we want to remember that. He was given unique promises by God, right? God hasn't told any of us that we're going to be the father of many nations, that we're going to inherit all these lands, right? 
God's test here to Abraham isn't necessarily a one-to-one correlation of ways that we feel tested. But at the climax of this test, Abraham is all in. Abraham obeys the Lord fully, no questions asked. And at that moment, as he's about to slit the throat of the son of the promise, the one he has waited for years for, the angel of the Lord interrupts him and calls him by name. Verse 12. Sorry, verse... Yes, verse 11. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Notice again the the repetition there from verse 1. And he says in verse 12... Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And then Abraham lifts up his eyes and looked. And this is really interesting because it says here in verse 13, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And if you look back up at verse 4, it says, On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw. This lifted up his eyes and looked, lifted up his eyes and saw. It's the exact same wording. It's the exact same phrase in the Hebrew. First, in verse 4, he looks up and he sees Mount Moriah, right? He sees the place of death. He sees the place where the promise is going to come to an end. But in verse 13, he looks up and he sees the lamb that will take the place of the son so that the promise may continue And so that the son may live. We've seen already in in Genesis that there are many puns. There are many plays on words in the Hebrew. Especially in the names of people and places. And there's one that's really important in this passage to, to kind of understand what's going on. And it starts with the name of the land, Moriah. Uh, There's a word in in Hebrew, ra'ah, and that's the root word that's used in this name, Moriah. But then this word appears over and over throughout this passage. The word provide, the word see, the word appear, um, these words, this has been used over and over. So this word here that says the Lord will provide, that it can be translated as provide, see, appear, God prior to this, had appeared to Abraham three different times, so there's that idea of of appearing. Um, The main idea that gets translated here in the English is, is the Lord will provide. So in verse 14, Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. And it's the Hebrew name is Yahweh Yireh, which you may not be familiar with, but you're probably familiar with the other word, Jehovah Jireh, right? Probably all heard the the catchy tune, Jehovah Jireh, my provider, his grace is sufficient for me. That is the name here that is used. The Lord will provide is the name Jehovah Jireh, Yahweh Yireh. And so it's saying on this, and then he, he goes on, he says, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So God's provision of the lamb is kind of the main idea here. But there's also this idea of God will see or God will be seen. So you can, and some of these are in the footnotes down there, but on the mount of the Lord, uh, he, he will be seen. 
So God will be seen or God will appear. So this whole idea of God revealing himself and God providing and God being seen, they're all kind of tied up in this, in this one word. And there's, there's multiple meanings and kind of multiple facets to that. So what did God provide? He provided the lamb, right? He provided the substitutionary lamb in the place of Isaac. So we have some context now for the importance of the fourth and final scene. Scene four is a tremendous promise. Verses 15 through 18, a tremendous promise. The angel of the Lord speaks again to Abraham, reiterating from verse 12 that he did not withhold his only son. And then God says that he will bless him, he will multiply his offspring. And this was the promise that God gave to Abraham in chapter 12 when he first called him to leave his land and to go to a land that he would show him. We'll get into that next week. This, this picture here, this, this language is so important in the biblical narrative. Verse 17, I will bless you and I will multiply your offspring. Right? We've seen this language before. God's first command to Adam and Eve in the garden was what? Be fruitful and multiply, right? Fill the earth. We saw it again in chapter 9 with Noah after, the, after they leave the ark, right? Go out, multiply, fill the earth. But what did we see last week at the Tower of Babel? When they disobeyed God's command. Remember they, they came together. They gathered together. They opposed God's command to, to go out and to fill the earth and to multiply. They tried to make a name for themselves. They tried to preserve themselves. That was exactly opposite of what God had commanded. And we talked about the word that God confused their languages so that they could not understand each other. Right, And that was the Hebrew word shema, the word for listen, the word for hear, the word for obey, right? Understand, listen, hear, obey. By faith, Abraham obeyed God. Look at verse 18. In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. That is the word shema again. Abraham, you listened to me. You heard me, you obeyed me, you understood me. Abraham obeyed God and rejected the gospel of self-preservation. He put it all on the line. He put the whole blessing of all those future generations that God had promised him, he put it on the line. So we need to just try harder, right? We just need to obey God like Abraham did and just try harder. No, no. We can't do that. We're not called to do that in that exact same way. I've dropped a lot of hints here, and hopefully you kind of see where this is going, right? Um, If you're not familiar with this story of Abraham and Isaac, maybe this is the first time you've heard this, or if you were napping, Andrew, I saw you. Um, Just kidding. Where is this all pointing? Where is this story pointing? First, the father did not withhold his only son. Right? The verse that everybody knows, right? John 3.16. For God so loved the world 
that he gave his only son. He gave his only son that whoever would believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. Romans 8, you can turn there if you want to. Romans 8, starting in verse 31. Romans 8, this is a great promise. Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Now, there's something really interesting here. The, word that, the Greek word that Paul uses here for spare is the exact same word. It's translated in the, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's the same word as withheld. Abraham did not withhold his son. So that word gets translated in the Greek Old Testament, and Paul uses that same word in the New Testament to say God did not spare his only son. Paul knew his Bible pretty well. I don't think this is an accident. Okay? He's making a direct reference to what God called Abraham to do. He, the Father, who did not spare his own son, Jesus, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Right? Easter Sunday, he was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Jesus is alive. He's at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is where the victory comes from. This is where the motivation to live the Christian life comes from. Don't read Genesis Chapter 22 and say, I could never have faith like Abraham. I can't be like him. That's not the point. You can't be like Abraham. God gave up his only son for us. Believe in him. Trust in him. Look to him. He is the sacrificial lamb in Genesis 22. The question, where is the lamb? You know, it's easy to look at the Genesis 22 story and say, oh, well, Isaac was Jesus, right? Well, sort of, but it's the lamb. It's the sacrificial lamb that points forward to Jesus. Isaac might represent Jesus in some way, but he doesn't point us to Jesus in the way that we need. We need that lamb that was caught in the thicket, right? That's what we need. Where is the lamb? 
said the whole Old Testament was asking that question, right? Well, how does the New Testament start? John chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right? We've talked about how the genealogies, right? Matthew's genealogy, beginning the New Testament, Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, son of David, right? That, that language of him being in that, of that royal line. Well, in John's gospel, this is how it starts off, right? He's the sacrificial lamb. Well, first it talks about him, you know, in the beginning was the word, words with God. He's eternal. He's the son of God. But right here in the first chapter, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He answers that longing that they had in the Old Testament. Where's the lamb going to come from? And John says, here he is. He's right in front of you. And he's going to die for you. And he's going to take away your sins. The next thing, the son obeys the father. We talked about Isaac, how he obeyed the father, how he was bound even to the point of death. Philippians 2.8 Probably all know this verse. Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Isaac's obedience to his father, definitely we can say that points us to Jesus. The son obeys the father to the point of death. But death couldn't hold him, right? He climbed out of the grave. He rose from the dead. He defeated death. And that's what we celebrate every single Sunday. Every single time that we come to worship, we celebrate that Christ has rose, has risen from the dead, that he's alive. It's not just on Easter. I mean, it's great to come here on Easter Sunday and be excited about the resurrection. But we should be excited about it every single week, every time that we gather for worship. We should celebrate in that way. As we saw in 1 Corinthians 15, which we read earlier, Paul says, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. In other words, if Jesus has not been raised, this weekly gathering here is an utter waste of time. Go do something else. Right? Go hang out downtown. Go play basketball. Why are you here? If Jesus isn't raised, none of this matters. We're a bunch of fools. We're a bunch of clowns if this isn't true. If you want something to believe in, something to have faith in, if Christianity is not true, it's the worst thing to believe in. It's the most ridiculous thing on the planet to believe in if it's not true. We're following some guy who claimed to rise from the dead, but if he didn't, what are we doing? We're deceived. 1 Corinthians 15, three things. If Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, our faith is futile. We are still in our sins, and we are of all people most to be pitied. That is the holy trinity of pitifulness. If you want that, don't... if. Don't believe in Christianity if those things aren't true. We're fools. It makes no sense. Remember what I read in the book in the beginning? 
He said, it is much harder to be a disciple in the gathering gloom on the road to Emmaus, puzzling over the death of the Messiah and not yet seeing how that death will lead to resurrection. For most of us, much of our lives seem to be spent trudging along that dreary road to Emmaus. If you're not a Christian, maybe you think this whole Jesus thing is just some crazy story, just some crutch that people use to feel better about themselves. But what if it's true? What if God has provided a sacrifice for sin? What if his promise to make you a new person in Christ is true? And what if your only hope beyond the grave is to trust in him? To believe in him that he conquered the grave. And you can too. If you're a Christian, it's because like those disciples on the road to Emmaus, Jesus has opened your eyes. He's revealed himself to you in the scriptures. And you have seen the risen Lord with eyes of faith. Remember what Jesus said to Thomas after Thomas reached out and touched his hands and his side. He said, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is the faith and the obedience that we are called to. Not self-preservation. Not living for ourselves. Again, don't try to imitate Abraham. Imitate the son, the one who laid down his life for you. Die with him so that you may rise to new life, just as he was raised. And that's what this table here is a reminder of. That's what this table is a picture of. It answers the question for us, where is the lamb, right? We, we need to ask the question too. Where is the lamb? I mentioned a little bit about the road to Emmaus. I want to read Luke chapter 24. Starting in verse 26. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Christ is known to us in the breaking of the bread. When we come to this table, our eyes are opened afresh. We commune with the living Christ. We're nourished by him. It's an opportunity to come to confess your faith in Christ, to say, I believe in him, I trust in him. And if you're not there yet, we'd ask that you would remain in your seats. We'd love to talk to you more about that. 
For those of you who, who are there, uh, we would invite you to come forward. If I could have the servers come forward at this time. Uh, we have gluten-free bread. There are, there's red wine on the outside and white grape juice on the inside.